KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Hey, have you liked my Cinema Junkie Facebook page yet? Or followed me on Twitter at Cinebath? Or maybe left a review on iTunes? Well, if the answer is no, please take a moment to do that right now. Was that enough time for you? It would also be great if you could tell just one friend to take a listen to this podcast, because your personal recommendation is the best advertising I can get. Thanks for your support. And now on to the show. And what a show it is. Warning. We interrupt this presentation with the following urgent message regarding the stuff. If you see it in stores, call the police. If you have it in your home, don't touch it. Get out. The stuff is a product of nature, a deadly living organism. It is addictive and destructive. It can overcome your mind and take over your body. And nothing can stop it. Larry Cohen is a genius. You don't believe me? Well, let me explain. Orson Welles may have a star on the Walk of Fame, accolades and Oscar nominations, but he died broke. None of his films turned a profit in his lifetime, and he always struggled to get financing and control over his movies. Larry Cohen, on the other hand, engineered a career that got him the best of both worlds in the entertainment industry. Not many can claim to have enjoyed both a traditionally successful career within the mainstream Hollywood system, as well as cult status outside the studio system, making audaciously independent films exactly the way he wanted to. He also managed to be both a savvy businessman and an artist who got to pursue his creative vision. And what a vision it was. Housewife. She has nothing to lose. Rated R. Fred Williamson. He may never get to heaven, but he's raising hell up in Harlem. God told me to. It's alive. Don't see it alone. Please. The It's Alive baby is back again. Only now there are three of them. It lives again. It's Alive Part 3. Island of the Alive. Don't see it alone. The ambulance. I promise you, you're going to be in perfect health before you die. A distinguished Oscar-winning cast in a true story of political intrigue at the center of power from World War I to Watergate. The Private Files of J. Edgar Hoover. And man against the winged serpent. Coming soon for you, the stuff from New World Pictures. Just the titles of these Larry Cohen films speak volumes about his iconoclastic style. Cohen built a successful career as a writer and director in television, starting back in 1958, writing for Kraft Television Theater, and continuing for decades. He created series like The Invaders and wrote for shows like The Defenders, Columbo, and even NYPD Blue. But the structure of series television and Hollywood studios was far too constraining for the maverick Cohen. 
So in 1972, he set off on a parallel career as an independent filmmaker and made his feature film writing, producing, and directing debut with Bone, also known as Housewife, and starring Yafet Kodo, Joyce Van Patten, and Jeannie Berlin. What do you want? I don't let me do it again, please! Attention, hungry housewives. You must see Housewife. Overfed and underloved. She'll try anything. Would you like a drink? Housewife. The movie every housewife must see. Cohen's deliriously eccentric films have won him a devout cult following. Among his fans is Steve Mitchell, whose admiration for the director led him to make the documentary King Cohen. Mitchell wanted to pay homage to Cohen, whom he felt was not widely enough appreciated in the mainstream. The documentary assembles an impressive list of people who also admire Cohen, such as Michael Moriarty and Fred Williamson, who repeatedly acted for him, Martin Scorsese, John Landis, J.J. Abrams, Rick Baker, Mick Garris, and Joe Dante. Here, Michael Moriarty talks about acting for Cohen, and Scorsese also chimes in. You have a script, but there's always a possibility, a wonderful possibility, which I'd never had before of a director, writer, producer who had all the freedom in the world to throw me anything he wanted. When I saw Q and the stuff, I was kind of intrigued by how he worked with Michael Moriarty and kind of guided him as he went along the course and around the bend and out over the bend, so to speak. I mean, you feel like he, he really could spin out of control. 19 years old, I was bumnapped by a cop like Pal because he wanted to get a conviction. That wonderful sense of really about to spin out of control, maybe go out of control, on screen, maybe off. And that kind of erases the line between the picture and the actual experience. Mitchell hits paydirt with Cohen, who's a great raconteur and has outrageous tales to tell about shooting his independent films. Here's a montage recounting some of the adventures he had shooting in his hometown of New York City. And New York was the greatest in Hell Up in Harlem and in Black Caesar. We ran rampant over that city. Larry would not only shoot in the streets of New York, he would drive cars up on the sidewalk in the streets of New York. Well, suppose somebody gets run over. I said, this is New York City. They just get out of the way when you're coming. He would do things that were I guess you could call them dangerous, and he almost always got away with it. Here's the thing about Cohen's movies. Most of them start off as seemingly conventional genre films, many looking like standard police procedurals. But then, almost all of them take wild left turns that simply make your jaw drop in awe. On December 25th, 1953, a child is born, a virgin birth. Tomorrow, all civilization will tremble under his almighty power. For this podcast, I speak with the master himself, Larry Cohen, as well as documentary filmmaker Steve Mitchell. So fasten your seatbelts for a careening ride through the career of King Cohen. I began my interview with Cohen by asking him what got him into filmmaking in the first place. Well, it was going to the movies as a child. I mean, uh, uh, when I was a kid, there was no television, so you went to the movie theater at least twice a week and he saw a double feature each time. So I was seeing four movies a week, and sometimes I'd sit through them twice or three times if they didn't throw me out of the theater. So I was just immersed in movies. And what kind of things did you like the most when you were a kid? I liked Warner Brothers movies. Hard-boiled, tough movies with Humphrey Bogart, Ebba G. Robinson, James Cagney, you know, all those kind of uh, hard-boiled tough guy, Errol Flynn. Uh, I just like those kind of movies that they did at Warner Brothers. They were fast-moving, 
They were uh, mainly black and white and uh, uh, well-edited, fast-paced, overlapping dialogue, the kind of movies I make today. And when you decided to go into filmmaking, was that the kind of movie that you wanted to make, were those kind of Warner Brothers films? Yeah, exactly. So you've been described a lot as being a guerrilla filmmaker, which is kind of very different from those Hollywood studio films that Warner's was making. But what does it mean to you to kind of be described as a guerrilla filmmaker? Well, a guerrilla, if you don't spell it with a G-O-R-I-L-L-A, which is probably more adequate, I'm kind of a, a guerrilla filmmaker. Uh, I, uh, I I really make films myself. Uh, I don't have a huge staff. I don't have a producer. I don't have studio executives. I don't have other people giving me input and supervision. I just go off and make my own movies the way I want to make them. I edit them myself. I uh, hire the same people usually over and over again to work on my crew because they're accustomed to working the long hours that I demand and and uh, kind of following instructions without asking questions. Uh, so uh, generally, uh, it was m- making a film as independently as possible, uh, which was the only way I could work. I just can't uh, work under, uh, uh, under supervision, and uh, I can't uh, handle input from other people. I just want to make my own film from beginning to end my own way. Yeah, I was going to ask if if you could have worked under a studio system, because you, your films, and I mean this in the most positive sense, but your films always have some element of crazy in them that is so wonderful, and I don't see how that could really survive in a... Well, I can't work with people asking me questions all the time, like, what are you doing, or how come it's not in the script, and why are you changing the script around, and why are you adding scenes, and why are you changing the characters of the actors, uh, uh, you know, because... Uh, to me, the script is alive on the set. When we're when we're making the picture, we're we're actually writing it. Also, at the same time, we're shooting it. And since I'm the writer, always uh, it, I can do it. But uh, I don't want to spend the time explaining myself to other people. Uh, I'd rather just go out and do what I'm going to do, and uh, and cut my picture together. Nobody sees it until it's finished. So uh, it's. Uh, a unique way of making movies, and uh, it's very satisfying. And once you get used to making pictures that way, you just can't go uh, into some other system uh, where uh, it's so collaborative. Now, you've done a lot of TV work, too, which seems like it would be much more structured. So was the filmmaking kind of where you got to be yourself, and TV was more where you were? Yeah, I did the TV just for the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, frankly, I was successful in television before I ever started making movies. Uh, I uh, had a number of series on the air, and, uh, you know, I had already bought myself a big mansion in Beverly Hills, and I had uh, written quite a number of screenplays that got produced. And uh, But I was not happy with, with the result. I was looking at it and saying, my God, when my whole career is over, I'll be looking back at a bunch of pictures that I'm not satisfied with. So... Uh, if I'm ever going to have any joy out of this, i got to make my own movies. And the only way I can make my own movies is to make them uh, my own way and without anybody interfering. Did you feel that working in TV was it provided any kind of a good training ground for you? It, even no, if it... <laughs> it was the reverse. It was the worst. 
I mean, first of all, when you do a TV series, you're doing the same show every week. So who wants to do the same movie over and over again or the same play over and over again? You want to do different things. You want to uh, go out and uh, explore different areas and have some fun. And, uh, and with television, of course, there was always dealing with the network and uh, standards and practices and uh, as studio executives and uh, budgetary executives and, uh, and network executives, an endless stream of people. Anybody who's in television will tell you that they have an endless array of people butting in and interfering and making stupid suggestions. So, you know, I have fortunately been able to avoid most of the stupid people that permeate the building, uh, the business. It's, it's worse now than it ever was. Uh, it used to be people who were in the television business had some background, maybe in radio or in early television. Uh, but now it's all people who are uh, coming out of business school and uh, don't have any training in theater and really don't know anything about the, the history of motion pictures and the, uh, and the uh, films that came before. I mean, if you go into a meeting today, and in the course of the meeting you uh, mention uh, some great movie from the past, like Double Indemnity or something, and you get a blank look from these people. They don't know what you're talking about. Then they get offended because they think you're putting them down because they're not up on the uh, history of motion pictures, and they don't have any real background. So you get a lot of hostility. Uh, so I'm sick of looking at blanks blank stares when I bring up things that uh, they should know about and they don't because they don't really care about making movies. They only care about the bottom line, the money. That's all they're interested in. You were born in New York and a lot of your films are set in New York. Do you think the city and and being raised there kind of contributed to the kind of filmmaker and the kind of films you wanted to make? Well, you know, when I grew up in New York, it was uh, the world was entirely different. When you were 10 years old, you could get on the subway, go downtown, walk around, go to the movies, go to sneak into the second act of a play. Uh, you could, uh, you know, the city was yours. Uh, people weren't afraid, and uh, everybody wasn't so nervous about uh, kidnappers and molesters and crime. Uh, New York was kind of a, you know, a fun place to grow up because it was a big playground for me. So all the places that I frequented as a kid, I later on incorporated into my movies years later. And... Uh, and I got a kick out of doing that. And when they did a New Yorker article about me, uh, the uh, writer and I toured around New York City to the different locations we'd used. And my gosh, it was hardly a street or a monument that we hadn't included in one of our movies. There was uh, the whole city seemed to have been uh, a, ba a back lot for me. And uh, that, I loved that idea. I loved working in New York City. But the one thing about the city is it's terribly congested and very hard to get around. So you really have to plan out in advance uh, where you're going to shoot because moving from one location to another is virtually a nightmare with all the traffic backed up. So usually I would pick one section of the city and shoot there, uh, all the different scenes in that area, and never have to move to another location. So uh, I planned it out pretty well in advance. You have a reputation for the shooting kind of on the fly in New York City and not necessarily getting permits. <laughs> well, we we got permits sometimes, and sometimes we didn't. Uh, very often, we were trying to avoid the unions, actually, because 
back when I was making pictures, the uh, cost of shooting in New York was prohibitive, and we couldn't really afford to hire all the union help. I mean, uh, a major studio picture would probably have close to 100 people working on the crew, and I was making a picture with seven people on the crew. So, obviously, I couldn't afford to pay for all those additional people and that you'd have to take on if it was a union production. So it was either a choice of doing it my way or not doing it at all. So we would go ahead and get a location on, like, 57th Street, and then uh, that would be the location with the permit, but we'd actually shoot it on 74th Street. So uh, the permit was never for the area we actually shot in. In case the unions came looking for us to close us down, we were never there. We were always someplace else. That was one of the reasons why we worked it that way. I think in the documentary, Fred Williamson says that uh, you were the greatest thief, <laughs> and he learned that from you. Well, I don't know what he learned from me, but I hope I'm not taking credit for any of his movies. I, I, may, I may have been the world's greatest thief. I, uh, I, I, I figured the city belonged to me, and I could do whatever I wanted to do. Now, you worked with him on Black Caesar and Hell Up in Harlem, and I know those films get classified as black exploitation, but you really seem to think that those were more just kind of an homage to those Cagney and Robinson films? Yeah, well, they were gangster movies, and uh, that's what uh, Public Enemy and Little Caesar were, Roaring Twenties. Uh, you know, these were my favorite movies, and I was just doing a uh, version of those movies with a black cast, and I was uh, happy to give an opportunity to black actors to be playing something other than servants or maids or butlers or, I mean, you know, the kind of parts that black actors got in movies for years, there were always these menial roles. And, uh, you know, I wanted to have uh, uh, classy actors and uh, playing, you know, uh, leading roles and, and, uh, and the kind of parts that movie stars played back in the 40s and 50s. And I gave a chance to a lot of black actors. I never considered the pictures to be Black exploitation films, because black exploitation films usually the the black hero always uh, uh, is victorious and uh, beat up all the white guys and uh, uh, seduced all the white women, and that's the black exploitation. Uh, in my film, uh, the hero has a rise and a fall. He he achieves uh, success and then it's all destroyed and taken away from him. Just like in the Cagney movie, Public Enemy, he loses everything at the end and loses the love of the girl that he is uh, enamored of, who's a black girl, and uh, he rejects the white woman. And uh, it was not a black exploitation at all. It was uh, just a big black Godfather movie. The Godfather of Harlem is doing it again. In Black Caesar, he ate up the town. Now, he's hungry for more. More action. More excitement. More everything. Isn't it great to be in America? Fred Williamson is back. And there's going to be hell up in Harlem. And your kind of hands-on approach to filmmaking was demonstrated, and you had to change the ending at the last minute on this one? Well, on the Black Caesar picture, he died at the end, 
and he's beaten, Barlow's beaten to death by a gang of young teenage juvenile delinquents in, in Harlem, and uh, the audience didn't like that at the preview, so uh, I called the studio executive in charge and said, listen, we have trouble here. The audience loves the movie but hates the ending, but I'm going to go to New York, and uh, we're opening next week. I'm going to change the ending. I'm going to just cut off the last scene and go to the theaters where the picture's playing, which I did, introduced myself, went up to the projection booth and took the film, cut the last scene off, tacked on the the, uh, end credits and went to the next theater and did it. And and, uh, the picture opened a few days later and it was a huge success. And and, um, it was a big blockbuster, actually. But oddly enough, the negative of the picture was never recut. So when they went to the DVD and the uh, uh, home video versions, uh, he dies at the end. So actually today, years later, it's much more acceptable uh, than it was back then. So I kind of like the fact that the original ending is on the picture on uh, on DVDs. But uh, at the time when we opened the film, uh, I certainly, uh, I think, credited myself for making it a hit by taking the last scene off the theatrical initial release. One of your films that's my favorite is uh, God Told Me To. Why did you attack all those people? God told me to. Everybody seems to like that one. It's the most requested film that I have in terms of film festivals. And also today, it, I mean, it plays as really relevant and resonant today. Well, I'll say this. I mean, all the terrorist activities just before they blow something up or assassinate people, they say, God is good. And uh, uh, that's pretty close to God told me to. And where did the idea for that come from? I don't know exactly. I mean, I, I, I saw uh, in the museums, particularly in Europe, the, uh, the, the art, of uh, religious art, uh, which is mainly what art was back in the Middle Ages because uh, the principal financier of all the artwork was the church, and the church was enormously powerful. And so most of the paintings uh, are depictions of something from the Bible, and, and the level of violence is so extreme, with arrows piercing people and people being crucified upside down and uh, uh, babies being slaughtered, and, you know, uh, it's unbelievable the amount of violence that you will see if you go to an art museum. I said, my God, you know, there's so much violence. God is such a violent character in, in, in the Bible. I mean, he slaughters the entire population of the earth. <laughs> so I said, you know, if I'm going to make a movie uh, about God, it's going to be a movie where God is a violent creature. And uh, that's basically how it started off. You know, most of my movies take something benevolent, like a baby or ice cream, or an ambulance, or a police officer, and turn it into an object of terror. And in this particular film, we we took the image of God and made it into a particularly violent and malevolent uh, source. But he, it turns out he wasn't really a god at all. He was an alien from another planet. So I think we were ahead of our time. We, we, we took the uh, science fiction fantasy element and we combined it with the documentary New York police element, and we made a, a, a combination of, uh, of the two genres that is, uh, at the time anyway, uh, unique. 
and has hardly ever been equaled, actually, if you think about it. I did it again, more or less, in Q, where the monster was some kind of an Aztec god. For ten centuries it has waited to be awakened, to be worshipped again like a god, to fill the skies, to cast its shadow over the earth, to release its fury. And the picture had a documentary police kind of look to it. Uh, so I did it twice. You mentioned that this is a film that you get requested a lot for festivals. If you could choose the film that you like the best or that you would want to put in a time capsule to be remembered by, which is your favorite? Well, oddly enough, my favorite is The Private Files of J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover. He was the most feared man in the history of the United States government. For 48 years, he defended the country against crime, subversion, and corruption. He was never elected. He was never opposed. He could never be bought. But he knew everyone who could. Everyone. How did he control the Kennedys? What did he know about Martin Luther King? Why did he defy President Nixon? What really happened to the private files of J. Edgar Hoover? This is the story of the real J. Edgar Hoover and the people whose lives he controlled. Which is a, a political documentary uh, horror story, in a way, about the uh, FBI director and uh, all that happened in American politics and the corruption of uh, almost every particular politician or public figure in this story. It's just uh, uh, one after the other, you see the cynicism and the uh, corruption of, of people who run the government. And what we're facing today in terms of uh, dissatisfaction with our leadership is nothing new. Uh, this stuff's been going on for generations. They, they, everybody was a bad guy. It's one of the reasons why the picture really wasn't successful when it was initially released, because uh, if you were a Democrat, you, had, uh, you were offended by the picture uh, because of the way we treated Roosevelt. And uh, if you were a Republican, you were offended because of the way we treated uh, Nixon. Uh, and we also uh, didn't handle uh, Lyndon Johnson too friendly uh, away either. So uh, no matter what side of the street you were on, you had a, a bone to pick with this movie. And, uh, and if you're going to make a successful movie uh, in, in this country, you've got to take one side or the other. You can't lambast everybody. But we did. And, uh, and the picture was way ahead of its time because we indicated that the leading FBI people were responsible for the Watergate and uh, that uh, uh, Deep Throat was a, a top member of the FBI, which was absolutely true. He even named Mark Felt as being uh, Deep Throat. But none of the uh, political analysts at the time cared to make any note of it because they thought, how could a, a filmmaker uh, go out there and, and come up with information and uh, that the journalists seemed to be completely ignorant of. So it, it, uh, to this day, they still haven't figured out what to get. And, and how did you kind of come up with that story? I went to Washington and I interviewed a lot of the uh, retired FBI uh, assistant directors, some of the top people in the Bureau, people who liked Hoover and people who hated him. 
and uh, I got a lot of information. I had uh, a fellow named uh, John Crudson, who was the New York Times uh, writer who covered the FBI, and had him as his technical advisor, and that gave me access to a lot of people. And I gathered all this information and put it in the picture, but, uh, you know, most of the journalists chose to ignore everything in the movie because uh, uh, nobody wanted to credit a filmmaker with having gotten all this cogent information. To this day, nobody understands Watergate at all because if you look at it, Nixon would never have been deposed if uh, Spiro Agnew, his vice president, had still been in power. Uh, Nobody wanted Agnew. He was worse than Nixon. The only way they could get to Nixon is to get rid of Agnew first. So uh, Mark Felt and the FBI executives, they destroyed Spiro Agnew first, got rid of him, and then went after Nixon and destroyed Nixon. So nobody has ever put this into context. It's just like they, they're totally oblivious to the fact that they had to get rid of Spiro Agnew before they could get rid of Nixon, so it was part of the same conspiracy. And the, the prosecutors who handled the Spiro Agnew case stated in their book, which nobody read, I'm sure, that they got their information from the same source as uh, uh, Woodward and Bernstein did. So uh, nobody has really gone back and and, uh, come up with a a full understanding of of what happened. All right. This makes me want to show that film again. (laughs) Yeah, you should see it. It's, uh, it's, it's, It's a good movie, and the performances are just great. You've always gotten great actors in your film, too. You have a really good eye for casting some people young in their <laughs> career and also picking up some people kind of later in their career as well. Well, they all, these actors always say to me that they did their very best work working, uh, working in my films. I mean, these are people who have been around for, you know, generations and worked at studios, and many of them won Academy Awards and... Uh, they were happy when I phoned them and asked them to be in my movie. There's an awful lot of talented people out in Hollywood who've won Academy Awards that are sitting home staring at their statue, and the phone never rings. So I, I wanted to grab these people and put them in a movie. And uh, they, they often said that uh, the best work they ever did was in my films. How do you compare filmmaking when you started out to the way it is now? Do you think that if you started now, would you have gone off on a very different kind of career or not been able to make some of the films you did? How do you compare the two? Well, you know, if the same thing was happening today as then, if I was successful in television and had some some series on the air and uh, and significant amount of money, I could have gone out and made my, whatever I wanted to. As it was, I never invested my own money in any of my films. Uh, I never put up a penny myself. It was always pre-sold to people before I started shooting, and uh, I didn't have to finance anything myself. Uh, so it probably would be pretty much the same today if I was successful in television. I'd be able to move over into my features. A little different today is that uh, m- most low-budget pictures don't get any theatrical release anymore. They, uh, they go directly to uh, cable so you wouldn't get to see your movies playing in theaters. And some of my movies were very successful at the box office. I made a lot of money on some of these films. And matter of fact, today, uh, checks keep coming in 
from movies that are 40 and 50 years old. They still generate any income. So, uh, you know, I, I'm very happy about that. I don't know if we would have gotten that break if uh, we were making the pictures today and they just popped them right onto uh, home video or uh, onto uh, cable. So, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm happy that the time was ripe for me to make those films when there was still a possibility of theatrical play for the films. Today, you know, all the theaters are filled with these $250 million blockbusters. If there are six theaters in a multiplex, five of them are all playing the same big picture, and one theater is playing the marginal product, and there's plenty of that. So you don't really get into these, uh, into these theaters anymore. And, uh, and even then, the advertising costs are so high that you can't really compete with the blockbuster movies. They spend so much money on advertising, and the advertising rates are so high, and you just can't afford to advertise your movie anymore. And if you don't advertise it, how are they going to know to see it? So that's the problem. And so many of these films are much better on a big screen and with an audience. Well, it's the fun of a movie is going to see it with an audience. I mean, I love to go to a theater and see one of my pictures. They do play them in revivals around the country, and I, I like to go and see the picture on a big screen. I'm not like some of these uh, filmmakers who say they never look at their pictures anymore. Woody Allen says after he finishes the film, he never looks at it again. Well, that's like saying you never say hello to an old friend. I, I, you know, I get a nice, happy feeling watching my pictures because I remember all the fun we had making them. Well, I just had the privilege of seeing It's Alive at the New Bev all-night horror marathon on 35mm, so yes. that was a lot of fun <laughs> with a packed house. It was. Did they react well? Oh, yeah. Well, that's good. That, yeah. was a, that was a very successful picture for me. It made a lot of money for me. I was able to buy a, a brownstone on... Uh, 79th Street off Park Avenue in Manhattan with the money from that picture. And, and, and that, that brownstone is today worth $18 million. <laughs> <laughs> so what can I tell you? Well, and where did the idea for the baby come from? I, I, I tell you, I saw one of my kids when, they, when she was born in the crib having a furious fit. And I thought, my God, if this baby could get out of that crib, it would tear everybody to pieces. I mean, there's nothing as angry and, and exhibits so much fury as a frustrated infant. So I said, well, there's my next movie. And it inspired some sequels, too. So. Well, we made three of them, yeah. only because the first one was so successful. That first picture was so successful, it was number one in the box office charts. And uh, some of the foreign countries uh, that it played in, it broke records all around the world. I mean, uh, it was, uh, I was constantly getting phone calls from far, foreign sales representatives telling me how sensationally the picture was doing in some areas. In one area, it was the second most popular movie in the history of Warner Brothers Studios. <laughs> but that was in Singapore. <laughs> I had a laugh. I said, this is the second most popular movie from Warner Bros. ever to play Singapore. They exceeded only by My Fair Lady. I had to laugh. I mean, when I told the uh, Hollywood distributors at Warner Brothers about the uh, business in Singapore, they laughed me out of the studio lot. 
I said, who cares about Singapore, they said. And I, I, I said, well, it certainly, didn't impress, it certainly impressed me anyway. And, of well, course, in today's marketplace, Asian countries like China are major, major markets for motion pictures. So if that picture was playing today in, in China, it would probably do $100 million. Well, one of the films, one of your films that's a favorite among friends of mine is The Stuff. What kind of inspired you to make that? Well, you know, I was talking to myself about consumerism and the, and the, and the uh, audacity of, of these corporations to put out products on the market that are going to kill people, and they know it. I mean, the cigarette industry for years denied that uh, cigarettes were toxic and made statements under oath at congressional hearings and lied about their research, I mean, and killed probably, uh, you know, more, movie, more people died from, from cigarettes than died in World War II on both sides. I mean, they were giving away free cigarettes to the soldiers and sailors during World War II in order to addict an entire young generation so that they came back from the war, they would be... Uh, uh, addicted to cigarettes for the rest of their lives, and it worked. And they ended up killing more people than died in the war. So these are, these are terrible people, and they have no conscience. This goes on today. There's medications being pulled off the market all the time because they turn out to be toxic. And every time I watch commercials on television, uh, they're nothing but products, uh, medical products, telling you you should use this product followed by uh, 30 seconds of disclaimers about the, the, uh, the, the harm this will do to you, a heart attack, stroke, death, blindness. I mean, it's a joke to listen to these commercials because usually most of the commercial is warnings about the product. So they put these things out in the market and they do damage to people. So I thought, well, let's see what kind of product I can make up. So we created a killer ice cream. No, don't eat that. I saw it moving the refrigerator. Here, Jason. Take some. There is something alive in there. It must be a side effect of eating too much dessert. Hey, wait, wait, wait. We are not alone. America is in grave danger. So are you prepared to say on the air that you've actually seen people devoured by the stuff? Oh, hell yes. And what's worse, I've seen what's left of them when the stuff gets through and comes back out. It seems like a lot of your films have kind of that social commentary lying underneath that you're that's something that's that concerns you and that you in, invest in these films even though they're you know maybe dismissed as genre films or horror films or science they're, fiction they're entertaining yeah you know if I, I could have made a movie about uh, poisonous products on the market but it wouldn't have been any fun but the stuff was entertaining it was fun it was suspenseful had some great performances and I got the point across the same way as an entertainment product rather than a documentary. Well, speaking of documentary, how did King Cohen come up, and, and how do you feel about this documentary? Well, I didn't, I didn't have anything to do with it, I mean, in terms of uh, the inception. They came to me and said they wanted to do a movie about me, and they wanted to call it King Cohen, and uh, I couldn't object to that. But, uh, you know, it's nice to be crowned 
uh, as a king of something, although I don't know what I'm king of. Uh, and I and I did not have any input into the making of the film. I uh, I didn't see it until just recently up in up in Canada at Montreal Film Festival. It was the first time I saw it, so it all it was all new to me, and I haven't yet digested it at all. It's a little it's a little stunning to see your life depicted on the screen, but uh, I am glad they made the film um, and uh, won the best documentary and. In, in Montreal, and it's been played in London, and it's been played uh, in Spain, it's been played all over, uh, I think they're showing it in Dublin this week, it's playing all over the world in film festivals, and getting wonderful response, so what can I say? I mean, uh, I wouldn't have made it myself, but uh, I'm happy somebody else thought to do it, and they did spend a lot of time and a lot of money making the picture. And uh, we are hoping to get very wide distribution for the film. Do you hope this inspires people to go back to your own films? Oh, I would think that after seeing it, they'd want to go out and rent one of my pictures or order it on the Internet. Most of my films are available on Netflix. You just say my name, my picture comes up, and then a list of 14 or so of my movies. And you can just choose them and rent them right there on the spot. So you don't have to look for a video store. Uh, like you did in the old days, and you don't have to search them out. They're all there for you. So uh, I would hope people will just pop on there. And I also have a website called Larry Cohen Filmmaker at AOL.com, and that's got a lot of interesting stuff uh, from my movies. And uh, I, I would uh, I would uh, recommend any fans look up Larry Cohen Filmmaker at AOL.com and see what's there. And do you have things there that are helpful to young filmmakers coming out? Any advice? There's some interviews that I've done that are on there that uh, uh, make some suggestions. But all in all, I can't advise filmmakers to do anything but make their film. Uh, that's all you can do. I mean, if you, but it's a good idea to work out your storyline in advance because uh, not everybody is Larry Cohen, and not everybody is going to be able to uh, come up with their. Uh, screenplay while they're shooting it and innovate new scenes and new sequences and make changes just because of a location or because you particularly fall in love with an actor's performance and you want to enhance it. I can do all those things because I'm a writer and a director, but most people can't do it. So uh, they have to be more careful than I was. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking some time and speaking with me. It's well, obviously, you know something about my films, and I appreciate that. That was writer-director-producer Larry Cohen. He's the subject of a new documentary called King Cohen, directed by Steve Mitchell. Here's a clip from the documentary featuring Cohen and actor Fred Williamson talking about Black Caesar. Every time there'd be a stunt that had to be done, I would have to do it first. Say, okay, Fred, you're in this cab, and you get to the corner, open the door and throw yourself out onto the sidewalk. Pull myself out on the sidewalk. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's, you'll be fine. Okay, Cohen, you do it first. Then I go in the cab. I'd throw myself out of the cab on the sidewalk. Okay. Well, that was it. No problem. But he didn't fall out of no cab. I promise you that. Larry did not fall out of a cab. Then I go around the corner where he couldn't see me and I go, Ah! Oh, Christ! This is terrible. Larry Cohen is no athlete. 
no matter how he jumps out of a cab, it's going to be wrong. So it don't really matter. He's going to hurt himself no matter what he does. Stepping out of the cab, he might hurt himself. So, okay, let's do it, Fred. And then he go around the corner. He throw himself out onto the sidewalk. He get up. You're right. Nothing to it. Then he go around the corner where I couldn't see him. And he, ah, gee, that corner. I hate that bastard. That's a Larry myth. That's a Larry myth. Mitchell explains how his documentary on Larry Cohen came about. Well, I was trying to create a job for myself. I was uh, working in the uh, you know DVD and Blu-ray special features uh, area, and um, I was kind of interested in doing something that was my own project, something that interested me, sort of as a fan, as a filmmaker, etc. And I was a big Larry Cohen fan. And one day I was looking at his IMDb page just to check out a credit, and I sort of uh, was presented with all of these credits of his that I didn't know. I I like to think I'm pretty much on top of stuff if I'm a a fan of a filmmaker. And uh, I was kind of overwhelmed by the amount of writing credits he had. I knew most of his directing credits, but his writing credits were were really uh, much broader uh, and longer than I ever knew. I said, you know, this, this is kind of interesting to me. And then I noticed that he did, he was doing all this mainstream work concurrent with all of his, his Lark, uh, Larco movies. Um, and I said, wow, he was working in mainstream and working independently at the same time. And Hollywood, uh, not so much today, but back in the day, was they, they had a tendency to pigeonhole you. If you were a TV guy, you only did television. If you were a feature guy... If you were lucky enough, you you stayed a feature guy. If you were a low budget guy, you were a low budget guy. Well, Larry wasn't, you know, he was all of those and none of those at the same time. He basically did what he wanted to do and uh, sort of did it with great ease, uh, you know, apparent great ease. I mean, it, you know, the, working in the film business is always difficult on some level. But yeah, he was shuttling back and forth, and I said, you know, this is very impressive. And then, of course, you know, he started writing. Uh, in, at the end of the live TV era. So I started thinking about this, and I, 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 I said, you know, maybe this is a documentary. And also Larry, uh, you know, Larry's reputation is, is mostly he's doing B-movies and genre movies, you know, and I, and I thought that, you know, there would be enough appeal here, perhaps, on a number of different levels. Um, and then eventually I found a couple of like-minded fellows who were fans of Larry's, uh, and, you know, we, we sat down and we said, you know, we're going to do this. And here we are. And in creating the documentary, what did you want to convey about him? What did you want to kind of get across to an audience that maybe had never seen a Larry Cohen film? Well, you know, it's interesting. You find the narrative when you cut the picture. Um, I'm not entirely sure what my initial ideas were. I mean, I wanted to tell a story about an interesting idiosyncratic filmmaker who's had a very, very long career that was mostly uh, executed on his terms and his way. Um, What happened when we were cutting it was I sort of discovered that in addition to being just sort of incredibly talented, you know, Larry was very willful very independent-minded, uh, and also very entertaining. And I said, you know, this this is a guy who is uh, 
very modern in his approach to making films in some ways and very old school at the same time. But the other, the other thing that sort of happened when we were cutting the picture is, you know, it sort of became a tribute to the way movies used to be made. I mean, you know, Larry's decision process was very in the moment, whereas most movies today uh, are uh, products of a lot of discussion uh, and sometimes corporate decision. And so I wanted, ultimately, in telling his story, and, and it's a story of a very interesting creative force, I also wound up telling a story about the way movies used to be made and, and how things were simpler, uh, more from the hip, and uh, you know, not overly thought out. I mean, you know, today I think every, every movie, whether it's a $200,000 movie or a $200 million movie, I think a lot of people sit around talking about it and worrying about it. Larry didn't care. Larry's attitude was, this is an interesting story. I want to tell it. Who's going to give me a check to make it? And I like that. I just sort of like that kind of simple uh, maverick approach that he took to making movies. And I think, you know, movies might be better today if, if they were made a little bit more from the hip the way Larry did back in the day. Do you remember the first film of his that you saw or the first one that made an impact where you go like, I want to know who this director is? Yeah, well, that, 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 that's a, a simple question with two answers. The first time I really noticed Larry, I was really a, a very young boy, and I think I had seen an episode of The Invaders, the, the TV series he did uh, with Roy Thinnes. And uh, I remember his card, you know, at the end of the show, it would say, created by Larry Cohen. He got a big single card, and, of course, that... His name, you know, was in front of this great image of a flying saucer, which was very representative of that series. It was very iconic. So I kind of, that, his name stuck with me. But the first movie of his that I really, uh, I think I really noticed was It's Alive, which is the monster baby movie that he did. Uh, but I saw that picture when it was reissued in, in, in 76. It, it apparently had been issued or released, rather, um, in, in 73, and it was not successful. And Larry uh, literally pestered Warner Brothers to get them to reissue it. And they did in 76 with uh, a different campaign. And I think the campaign was so engaging and so arresting that, you know, uh, the idea of a monster baby was specific in that campaign while it was unspecific in the original campaign. And I said, well, Monster Baby, what the hell is this? And so I went to go see it, and I said, well, this is strange. This is weird. This is original. Um, and again, I said, well, there's this Larry Cohen guy. And before the IMDb existed, I sort of tried to absorb every credit I could ever see, just so I would know who was who. And I paid a lot of attention. Then I started, you know, I looked for his movies, and I saw, you know, God told me to, uh, you know, which was which is a very bizarre original interesting picture and then uh, uh, in, you know around 1980 the the movie of his that really cemented me as a Larry Cohen fan was Cue the Winged Serpent but it's alive kind of got the ball rolling and you know again I was always very interested in guys who wrote produced and directed their movies because there weren't a lot of hyphenates like that around there are very few today I mean you know uh, Quentin Tarantino kind of comes to mind immediately. Um, and there are a few others, but you know, there were not a lot of hyphenates at the time. So 
Yeah, Larry was on my radar, but Larry was on my radar basically because of the originality of his movies and the ideas. I mean, if you were just to look at his films, you would say, what, what does this guy eat for breakfast? I mean, you know, he's just, he's just such an original thinker. And then, of course, as the years went on, especially when, you know, you could watch movies on, on video, I went back and I kind of got familiar with his exploitation movies and, and a bunch of his other pictures. Well, the thing about his films that I really like or I love is that they all seem to start kind of within a formula that you're familiar with, so like a police procedural or something. And then there's some point in them where they just take some wild like left turn and you're just like, whoa, where did that come from? Well, that's kind of Larry in a nutshell, isn't it? But. Yeah. I think the thing about Larry that Larry did before a lot of people did was he was he would do what I call what I call a uh, uh, genre mashups. You know, he would take one genre and then marry it to another genre. And I think that's an extension of who Larry is. I think Larry gets bored easily, so he's always looking for ways to sort of take maybe one kind of movie and then spin it a little bit into two kinds of movies. Uh, I think Hugh the Winged Serpent is, to me, you know, his, his sort of masterpiece in a lot of ways. But it's also his masterpiece because it's it's a New York street crime movie. It's a it's a it's an invest you know a police procedural on some level, and it's a wacky monster picture. And it's a it's a, it's a it's a, it's a character story. Um, you know, Michael Moriarty's character is maybe the most interesting character in any of, of, of Larry's pictures. And, I, and that comes directly from Larry uh, embracing Moriarty and, and, and tailoring that part to who Moriarty is kind of as a person as, and also as a creative force. The whole thing that with, with Jimmy Quinn, his char- uh, Moriarty's character as a piano player, that's because Moriarty could play a piano. Larry said, Oh, I like that. Let's use that. Let's bring that into the movie. And Larry was always very open to improvisation and change and 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 doing things again spur of the moment, which I think frightens a lot of filmmakers. But it doesn't frighten Larry at all. But yeah, Larry was was way ahead of you know the trend I think, which was in the '80s, where you would have certain genre movies that would be married to other genres. So two two quick examples of that would be Predator, which is kind of a a jungle war a jungle war movie and a science fiction picture and then of course you have aliens which was essentially a science fiction horror movie with a strong military uh, you know slant to it so and those were considered you know somewhat revolutionary at the time but except Larry had been doing that years earlier now i had the privilege to interview him the other day and he defines himself as being somebody who doesn't like to be told what to do and doesn't like, you know, to fit in a box or anything. <laughs> so I'm just curious in terms of getting him on board for this and sitting him down for interviews, what was that experience like? Was he like very amenable to this or did he bristle at it? I, I'm curious what he was like in terms of getting him to partake. Well, for starters, when I had the idea to do the picture originally and I was going to do it through crowdfunding, I said, you know, I, I ought to find out if Larry wants a movie made about him. And I knew someone who uh, could get me his phone number. And so I got his phone number and I, I said, all right, I took a deep breath and I said, okay, here we go. 
and you know, I I I, I punched the number, and you know, then it rang. I think two or three times, and I hear hello, and I said hi. Uh, you know, is this Larry Cohen? He goes, yes, it is. And and basically, I explained you know who I was and what I wanted to do, and he said, come on over to the house. That's my bad Larry Cohen impersonation, by the way. Um. And so I went up to his house, the famous house, which appears in a lot of his films. And he made me a cup of coffee, gave me a couple of cookies. And, he, you know, I said, I'm interested in doing this project. And he says, well, you would be interested in having the project done or something like that. And he says, if you can get it financed, I'll help you any way I can. And so Larry was, was true to his initial word. And he was always available. He's still always available to us for anything that we need. And... um so, yeah, he was game right out of the gate. And then when we went to his house for the first shoot, I think it was one of four uh, interviews. You know, I mean, I went with a, you know, pages of questions. And, you know, basically I learned very quickly that if you sit Larry down in front of a camera and you say, talk about your career, he's off to the races. I mean, I literally could have just said to the guys, all right, let's go out and have lunch just left Larry in the chair, let the camera roll, and he would still be, he would have still been talking by the time we came back after lunch. I mean, you know, Larry is a master raconteur, as as, as I'm sure you've discovered, and you know, he just he just has so much to say, so many different tales, you know, from his colorful career. It's like he's he's like one of the easiest interviews on the planet. I mean, you know, he's he makes good he makes for very good copy. And how is it getting he I mean he worked with a lot of amazing actors some he picked up early in their career some that you know he he found people who were you know later in their career and put them to use in his films but um how was it getting a lot of these people that he worked with to come on board to talk about him Um most people um uh basically we're happy to talk about Larry. I mean, Larry has engendered a lot of positive, you know, attitude uh, to, to the people that he's worked with. I mean, you know, one of the phrases that I would hear a lot is, oh, I love Larry. We love Larry. So it was basically a matter of finding people uh, and working with their schedules. Um, but a lot of people were, were willing to talk to Larry. I mean, there were a few that I did not get to talk with that I wanted to. Um, Joel Schumacher being one of them uh, was, uh, I don't think he was reluctant to talk about Larry, but I think he was just reluctant to, to talk, uh, you know, to us. Um, I wanted to get Tony Lobianco, but for some reason, and it might be my fault because I probably didn't, I didn't go back enough and try and get to him. You know, I connected with his answering machine and, and I, I explained who I was and what I was doing and I never heard from him, and that might be my fault. I would have, I would have liked to have talked to Tony Lobianco because he did. God told me to, which is, you know, a very original picture uh, that he did for Larry. Also, he's in the French Connection, which is, you know, like my second favorite movie of all time. And so I would have liked to have chatted with him. But I basically got most of the people that I wanted, or most of the people that I thought uh, I needed to talk to. I mean. Uh, it took a while to find Michael Moriarty, but we felt that more, you know, Moriarty was, as we said, a, a big get because Moriarty had starred in five pictures of Larry's and, and they had this great relationship. 
So, yeah, people were very willing to talk to me about Larry. They were very generous with their time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it, I don't think there are very few people who said, no, I have nothing to say about Larry Cohen. They were all very willing to chat. And do you hope the documentary in part will inspire people who maybe have never seen one of his films or have seen one of them to seek out more of what he's done? Well, I think one, we uh, um, you know, have run into people who have seen, have seen the documentary or we've shown it to people. And they say, gee, I didn't really know that much about this guy. I don't, you know, I, I might want to check out a couple of his movies. Uh, our lawyer who reviewed the movie uh, was not a Larry Cohen fan per se, but she found that he was very interesting as a character and as a person. And she, and she found his, his work, or at least the pieces of his work that she saw in the movie, very interesting to her. And she said, well, I don't know if I'm going to become a fan, but I'm, I'm curious. You know, and I think uh, when, you, when you do any movie like this, when you're doing a documentary, you want to expose people to something that they might not be aware of. And if they see the movie, they're going to see somebody who, um, you know, is, listen, he's a maverick. Maverick, he says, you know, I don't want to listen to people. I, I don't want to do what they say. I want to do it my way. You know, he's he is, you know, he is not the kind of filmmaker that exists today. I mean... And I think people respond to that. I think they respond to the fact that he's funny. I think they respond to the fact that he was daring. I think they respond to the fact that he was bold. I think they respond to the fact that his ideas are original. And I think, you know, at the end of his movies, there's always that card that says, a Larry Cohen film. And I've said this before, but that card is earned you know, some people, you know, they get that credit on a movie, a so-and-so film. Well, that movie is really uh, the synthesis of sometimes thousands of people doing a movie. Well, at the end of a Larry Cohen movie, you know, that movie is that movie because Larry Cohen made that happen. Uh, and granted, he's working on a much smaller level. I don't know that Larry could ever do a bigger corporate type picture, but you know, his his credit is earned, and I think people respond to that. And they go, well, this guy's interesting. And and I think in, in our society today, especially our film-going and pop-cultural society, people still respond to something that is interesting. In fact, I think interesting is the most important thing somebody can be as an actor, as a filmmaker, as a director, as a singer, as a musician. You know, because one of the things that seems to be happening today is that you know, because most entertainment is filtered through a corporate mindset, you know, it has to appeal to this sort of the broadest level of, of audience because it's, you know, it's about making money. Listen, it was about making money back in the day, but I think show and business kind of weren't colliding as much as they are today. You know, the, you could have the show if you made, if, if you did business. And, you know, Larry, you know, I think Larry was very lucky that he did what he did when he when he did, because Hollywood was changing and Hollywood was embracing a more independent minded uh, approach to filmmaking. And his also very street approach. You know, when Larry started making his own movies, you know, he was doing it, you know, right, right around 1970 and Hollywood was changing at the time. So Larry's timing was very good. And, 
you know, success is usually a combination of luck, timing, and talent. And I think I think Larry, you know, was a was very fortunate in that, you know, his luck and and his timing and his talent all came to you know came to play at the same time, and that's why he was you know, he was able to do what he was able to do. Do you find that his films are? readily accessible now can people find them with any great ease or are they still kind of difficult to track down i think you know uh, i mean i think everybody watches movies you know streaming now if they can't stream it they don't want to watch it but that being said i think his his movies are probably more available now than they may have been in the past i mean you know, there are these things called Blu-ray players, and they work pretty well. And if you can find a Blu-ray for a movie, you know, most of his most of his catalog is out there. Some of it is not, and some of it is on the way. Um, one of the things that I've done is um, I'm always looking at, uh, you know, announcements for upcoming Blu-rays. And, um, you know, Larry and I have done a couple of commentary tracks together for some of his movies. You know, one of his movies, you know, one was the sequel to uh, Black Caesar, a movie called Hell Up in Harlem, which is a wild, crazy Larry Cohen from the hip movie. And then we also did a commentary for one of his lesser films, uh, lesser in terms of size and notoriety, which is uh, Special Effects, which is uh, one of two movies he did back to back in New York. Uh, in the 80s that were sort of done almost like as underground movies. They didn't even have, uh, you know, uh, SAG actors in in the movie. And they were done very low budget in New York, on the fly. But they're both very interesting. So, you know, even, even those sort of more hidden Larry Cohen movies are becoming available, at least on Blu-ray. And then audiences can see them, you know, looking better than ever. I mean, uh, uh, special effects, looks great. Um, you know, God told me to looks great. I mean, a lot of these movies that he did that, you know, were, you know, Larry always used to say that he hated movie lab as a, as a film laboratory because the, the baths that the movies were, were processed and were, you know, were dirty and were not changed. And so even if you saw a Larry Cohen movie, uh, on day one at your theater, sometimes the prints weren't really that good. Well, now you can see a lot of his movies looking better than they ever looked. And so it's it's you know it's a good time to start checking into Larry's pictures and and and, and seeking them out because they'll look good and they won't you know they they'll have less of a grindhouse feel to them, which I have to admit is sort of charming. But you know the material the material can be found. It's his TV stuff which is sort of hard to find. Although uh, that is also showing up to some lesser degree. In creating the documentary, was there anything that either he revealed or one of the other people you interviewed revealed that you were just like, oh, this is like so great, or this is, I'm so glad I got that? Wow. Boy, that's that's a relatively simple question, and I don't even know if I have any answer for that. I learned so much about Larry um, I mean, I, I don't know what our total raw footage number was, but I think I had about somewhere between 15 and 20 hours of, of interview content with Larry alone. Uh, and then I talked to, I don't know, 20 plus, 20 some odd people. I should have these numbers, but I don't. 
and and then I got hours and hours with them. So I probably I probably had somewhere between thirty five and forty five hours of raw footage, and I learned so much. I think I think the thing that I learned that I found somewhat charming uh, was was uh, he Tracy Lords was cast in a TV movie that Larry produced and directed and wrote. And she was sort of coming off her, you know, her very notorious period in the adult film business. And Larry, I think, had interviewed her and thought she was right for this part. And then everybody's going, oh, I don't know, Larry, you know, you know, she has this, you know, checkered past and, well, Larry's attitude was he, he didn't care. He thought that she was really good. She was good for the part. And he wanted to cast her. So I was very sort of taken by the fact that Larry was, you know, one, he recognized her ability as an actress. And two, he fought for her. You know, sometimes in television, a lot of people will not rock the boat. Well, Larry has rocked the boat his entire career. And I was I was sort of touched and charmed by the fact that he he supported you know Tracy uh, and uh, she ultimately did the TV movie and she was very good in it. Um, I I think the thing that surprised me about Larry more than anything else were his balls, how the ballsiness that he brought to making movies on the fly without unions without permits. In New York City, that's my hometown. I know how New York City works. I know, I know, I know those streets. I know how it's wired. And Larry's attitude was, well, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I, I just, you know, the, the nerve and and the courage that he had that that surprised me. Um, he's he's there's a lot to Larry. He's a very complex guy. I think he has a lot of heart. Um, I think he has a lot of nerve. I think he has a certain degree of, of, of arrogance. Uh, but his arrogance supports his goals as a filmmaker. Um, it's he's an interesting guy. I mean, when I watch movies, um, I, I I'm always looking for complexity in character, and and Larry is a complex guy. Um, you know, I think the other thing that surprised me about him, and, and this was a kind of a cumulative effect, was the fact that he's still a stand-up comedian. I found out that, you know, that he started, you know, doing stand-up, and, and he decided he didn't want to do it, you know, as a career. But that that DNA is still in him. The, the performer DNA is still in him, and um, and I'm I'm fascinated by that. And, uh, you know, you've talked with him, so you, you, you can tell that Larry is a very entertaining guy. Oh, yes. And for you, what is your personal favorite uh, film of his and why? Well, it's got to be Cue the Winged Serpent because, uh, you know, I, I mentioned before the just the, the, the genre mashup wackiness of it um, uh, was very entertaining. It's, you know, the idea of a of a creature flying over New York City and plucking people off rooftops and, and construction sites. I mean, that's just a wacky, nutty idea. But at the end of the day, what I like about it, you know, is really Michael Moriarty's performance, which I think is spectacular. But having said that, a very, very close second Larry Cohen movie is The Ambulance, which is, again, another a picture that he shot mostly in New York. Uh, again, it, 
the idea that this ambulance is running around doing malevolent things, and it is it represents this larger plot about uh, you know getting people and and mining mining their organs, and um, <clears throat> all of that uh, you know, and, and just again with those wild, wacky Larry Cohen filters. I mean, those are kind of my two favorites, and we're doing a, a film festival. Uh, in Chicago in a couple of weeks, uh, we're going to be showing this, you know, showing our film. And then, uh, the night after that, um, we're going to be screening the ambulance and Eric Roberts will be, will be there. And, you know, that'll be exciting. I, it, it's going to, cause I've, I've seen the ambulance in the theater once with a very receptive audience and the audience went nuts. And I'm very curious to see it again with another audience in a very big theater. I think it's going to be screening in a big theater in Chicago because they're fun. Those two movies are also so much fun. You know, they're wild, they're wacky, they're fun. They have interesting characters. The performances are great. You know, they're two really, to me, those are my two favorite Larry Cohen movies. I know other people love the stuff. Uh, a number of people we talk with are big fans of God Told Me To. Of course, it's the It's Alive movies are just crazy. But, you know, Q and, and The Ambulance are my two favorites. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking some time to talk to me about the documentary, and I look forward to seeing it. Oh, well, thanks for, uh, thanks, thanks for talking with me about it. Hopefully, I was, uh, I, hopefully you, you want to see the movie. You know, that's, that's the important thing. was filmmaker Steve Mitchell. His documentary, King Cohen, is making the festival rounds and screens November 13th at Doc New York. Thanks for listening to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend to take a listen. Your recommendation is the best way to promote the podcast. I would also appreciate it if you left a review in iTunes to help boost the visibility of the show. Coming up will be shows celebrating the uncomfortable cinema of David Cronenberg and a discussion of horror movies as spiritual practice. That'll be just in time for Christmas. I'm also working on delivering the show on a more regular bi-weekly schedule with a short break at the holidays. You can follow me on Twitter at Cinebeth and please like the Cinema Junkie Facebook page to stay up to date with all the podcasts. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. PBS On Demand 
is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I.